0: there, this is Cam Roundy, a USH med student, and I'm pretty stoked about this podcast. In fact, I'm really excited about this podcast, and I am, this seems to be a theme, terribly underprepared and expecting a heavy carry from you guys today. You guys ready for this? Yeah. I think so. All right, let's do some introductions. Uh, Patrick, let's start with you.
1: Uh, I am uh, Patrick War. I'm a third year uh, medical student at Rocky Vista University here uh, doing my psychiatric rotations with Dr. Roundy.
0: And I will point out uh, that there will be a greater introduction at another point Uh, when you do your podcast. Do you want to give us a hint as to what direction that may go, or are you still undecided? Uh,
1: Well, there will be one of two directions, either uh, opioid use disorder uh, maintenance with Spoxone or um, use of stimulants with adults with ADHD and comorbidity uh, substance use disorders, something along those lines.
0: Fascinating, look forward to it. And if I may point out, thank you for your service. Uh, Patrick is a veteran of foreign wars and, and uh, thank you. Kyle, you've been introduced before.
2: Yeah, I'm Kyle Celius, back again for my second go at this. I'm a fourth year medical student at Rocky Vista. Uh,
0: and I, I'm looking forward to uh, what everybody has to say, but let me just hint, foreshadow, Photometers yeah. Might be the turning point in why we can now use lithium. Yep. And you can tell us about that, potentially, or Devin. I don't know who's going to tell me about it. Kyle's, okay. yeah. <laughs> cool. And uh, Devin?
3: So I'm Devin Bourne. I'm a fourth-year medical student. planning going into family medicine. And, yeah, I guess I'm going to kind of be the sort of the center of attention, I guess, yeah, as we do this.
0: So, uh, Devin, generally speaking, I, I know that lithium... The reason you chose this was because you were talking to me and you said, you know, there's just all of these test questions about lithium and I want to tackle lithium. And not only that, it's pretty cool. Tell me about the, just foreshadow the cool of lithium that you're going to get to at some point in this podcast.
3: So yeah, we we want to make, we're going to do two podcasts on lithium and this one's going to be more about just the interesting story of, and chronology of lithium, how it's been discovered, how it's been used. Um, interesting things we've learned about it, and what's going on with the future of lithium and how that may also change things um, in our changing world.
0: I like it. Without further ado, perhaps you would tell me who the first man to eat an oyster was. (laughs) I have no idea. (laughs) So there's this very interesting story, right? Um, The FDA did not approve lithium for a very long time. Correct. Um, You said the phrase... Uh,
3: The phrase I saw with this all the time was that the U.S. was last in, first out. Uh,
0: The implication is that we were number 50 on the list of countries to approve uh, lithium for the treatment of bipolar disorder and not even depression, right? And uh, many other countries are well ahead of us. And in in those discussions when the FDA either finally approved it or was still not approving it, and that wasn't clear to me, uh, one of the people said something along the lines of, there has to be a first person, and uh, the comment was, who, who was the first man to, to eat an oyster, right? And so I want to go back to the 1800s, yes. and I want you to tell me, who was that guy? So, yeah, so this is a very
3: interesting story. So, yeah, so we need to go back to around 1850-ish um, for the beginning of the story of lithium. So at the time, this starts actually with doctors trying to find a way to treat gout so their gout or urate crystals do not dissolve well in water and so they were trying to figure out is there some way that we can treat our patients give them something that'll help these ureth crystals dissolve so we can help treat their gout and so i was actually with this part of it not able to find any credit for who first discovered this but just that in the lab it was discovered that adding lithium into water allowed them to start dissolving um, these uric crystals and so they got all excited like okay maybe we can give lithium to our patients and start to to, to treat this gout. Unfortunately little did they know at the time um, that that re- it wasn't going to work all that well. So lithium quickly becomes neurotoxic in humans. there's we know now there's a very narrow therapeutic range we need to keep this in the levels of lithium that would be needed in the human body to start dissolving these crystals are far above the toxic range. Uh, but they didn't, they didn't know that back then, so they were, they were just excited, and they were trying to figure out a way to start treating gout uh, with, the, with these lithium salts. And with that, that then branched into the first psychiatric uses of it. So at the time, it was thought that mania and psychosis may be caused by uric acid crystals in the brain. And so the actual name for it, they didn't call it mania or psychosis or anything like that back then. They called it brain gout when people started, you know, having these symptoms. And so there they started to play with, okay, let's try and use this lithium to get rid of their brain gout. Uh, And there was some success with this, not because it was removing gout from their brain, but because the lithium was helping um, with mood disorders, with helping to range this bipolar and bring it in so it was helping with their mania symptoms and so this started to to take off a little bit it, it started to become known and there were some physicians who began using this um, in North America in Europe Australia and but it was never really widely adopted and as time starts to go on and medicine begins to evolve this idea that it's gout causing the problems begins to fade from like medical the medical forefronts of what they think is causing it and with that the use of lithium then to treat brain gout also starts to fade and kind of fall away until we get to about 1900 where a lot of it is stopped and it's kind of not really being used anymore
0: I'm going to jump in for just a second yeah. here, because I want to I want to go back to the identification of the uric acid crystals. So this was, I believe, Alfred Boring Garrod, G A R R O D, who identified that. He wrote this book, which was about brain what, treatment of body and brain gout or something along those mm-hmm. lines. And one of the things that rarely happens in these podcasts is that we can find seminal works that help us talk about mm-hmm. how did. How did this use evolve? And how did we figure out levels were toxic, right? How did we come to understand all of these things that you just told us about in like a couple of minutes? Yeah. And, and you can actually go into PubMed and Google this guy and you can read his entire book. It's been photocopied like this perfect copy. It, it looks like the copy's been highlighted, but it's this really amazing copy. And it's available to, to read as a PDF file out of PubMed. I also want to point out that even though the United States was one of the last countries to jump back in, as as early as the 1870s, we had people in Philadelphia and this group out of New York, Bellevue, who were using this, and their reports were, they weren't underwhelming. These were amazing reports, right? Correct. And even um, this very interesting story about Dr. Gustin's lithium. And somebody making the comment, you just don't have a lot of manic depressives in Marseille, right? That's the quote. Uh, that's not the language we use anymore. So even through this time, there were people making these comments about, wow, this, this stuff works. And it's not just a little bit. These were scientists treating patients that are profoundly mentally ill, right? Correct. And yet, despite this, it fades. Yep. All right, take me to, I think we're gonna go to about 1949. We are.
3: That's that's where we're headed, but there's more on the way. Ah, talk, talk so to me. So the next use of lithium was, I thought, was fascinating. So 7-Up, the soda drink, comes out in 1929, two weeks before the stock market crashes, and it has lithium in it. So at the time, it was not called 7-Up. It was called Bib Label Lithiated Lemon Lime Soda.
0: Lithiated Lemon Lime Soda. Yeah. So There's th- much more to that name but
3: it's yeah it's a long name so the, the bib label i had to look it up that actually referred to i guess the the paper sticker that was on the bottle that was quickly dropped off but i started looking through it was really cool all these old advertisements yeah of lithiated lemon and lime soda um, on billboards and on the bottle caps of the of the soda bottles and at the time so there was still a little bit of a thought that it might help with treating stones, so it was advertised in that way, and also it was supposed to be a remedy for hangovers to help people with that. I don't know if they actually had any evidence of that, but that's what <laughs> these, like, ads back in the 20s and 30s were advertising, is it could help with their hangover. So 7 and then seven, and then it ended up getting renamed, yeah, to 7-Up. And so it has lithium in its formulation up until 1948. And so the, uh, and at that time, it was the government made them take it out. So there were studies that were going on with patients with congestive heart failure, and I never really found out why. But for some reason, they were trying to see if they could replace sodium chloride with lithium chloride in these uh, CHF patients. And so as the United States starts doing these studies, they actually ended up going really poorly. Like a lot of patients were dying from these treatments that they were attending. And then these, all this information starts getting published, and it creates this huge negative thought in the medical community around lithium, that it's really bad. And so then, yeah, the government comes out and says, we've got to get rid of all of this. And so lithium comes out of soda, comes out of 7up, And it's um, completely banned in 1949 um, from any medical products at all. Um, In the United States? In the United States, yeah. So it becomes kind of this end to lithium usage in this way, because everyone has this really bad taste in their mouth about lithium. And so, but ironically that same year where it ends is also where it begins to make its comeback with this amazing Australian man named John Cade. So John Cade was working at a VA hospital outside Melbourne in Australia, and I was actually I was able to read his um, original paper that he published in 1949. And I guess it goes to show how papers get better because there were a lot of details he just left out and didn't explain, some things that I was trying to figure out, but um, it was still a pretty good paper. So he doesn't explain why, but he says he was experimenting with injecting urea into the peritoneal cavities of guinea pigs with measuring its toxicity. Why? He doesn't explain. But this is this is this experiment he's doing. And he said he was curious if uric acid would make the reaction worse. So when he would inject the urea into these um, guinea pigs, most of them would end up having a seizure and then about half of them were dying. And he thought, for whatever reason, uric acid would make it worse, so he wanted to inject that with the urea to see if it made the outcome even worse. But, as we said earlier, uric acid does not dissolve in water well, and so the best formulation he had to try and get it to dissolve so that it would go systemic in these guinea pigs was with lithium. And so he injects the guinea pig with an 8% solution of urea and then with this uric acid-lithium mixture. But then he says the reaction was not that strong, like it was less so. And so he started to identify, I think it might be the lithium that is somehow protecting the guinea pig from having a worse reaction. So then he decides to try a different lithium formulation. He does lithium carbonate. So then he he said he picked 10 more guinea pigs, injected those 10 with just urea, and then the other 10 with urea and the lithium carbonate. The 10 with just urea, five of them died. The lithium-injected ones, none of them died. So now he's like, wow, lithium is really, it's doing something here, what is this? So then he decides, okay, I'm just going to inject just lithium into them and see what it does. I want to find out what it's doing. And he said what he observed was, they didn't seem to have a medical reaction in any way, but he says, once he saw the drugs set in, they became very sedate and calm, a bit like lethargic for several hours. And then it wore off, and then they went back to their normal like guinea pig activities. And so he was like, well, I decided this is really cool, and I have all these patients that have mania and these other issues, so I'm going to try it on them. So the majority of his paper goes through. He had 10 male patients who were all manic, many of them for years, like 10 to 15 years, where they just had this intense mania and then he also picked six patients which at the time they said they had dementia praecox, which is now today what we know as schizophrenia so he decided to start treating them all with lithium salts to see what would happen and with all 10 of these manic patients he saw them come way down and pretty much normalized to the point that some of them were Essentially, completely, I guess whatever we call it, normal, recovered. like yeah, recovered. recovered, yeah, from from this mania, and then with the schizophrenic patients that he was treating, the patients with schizophrenia, thank you, he noticed that their their psychosis didn't go away. They were still having delusions, hallucinations, but their moods were much more regulated. They didn't have the tremendous outbursts and the panic. And so he publishes all this in this article um, in 1949. At the same time, the United States is banning it. And so it really, at this point, gets overlooked. No An one,
0: obscure journal, no less, right? Y- yes. I, I, I never even found what the journal was.
3: So it is... Oh, let me... I wrote it down. It is the Medical Journal of Australia okay. that it was in.
0: And uh, at the same time, we have this lithium being pulled out of the system it is found to be hurting people more and yet he publishes this paper and a few people pick it up correct
3: so it's it kind of sits out there in the world um with not a whole lot of notice but three years later a danish or all right yeah from denmark yeah Mm -hmm. (laughs) i get them all right danish and dutch right
0: risk Um, of denmark i think is what i have Eric Stromgren. Correct. Stromgren?
3: Yeah, Eric Stromgren reads this article and goes like, huh, this is really fascinating. So he goes to his colleague, uh, Mogren Scal, and says, I think we should, like, do a trial with this. And I guess at the time, randomized trials, the idea of that was very new. So they decided they were going to do a randomized trial on their patients. So they said they just started flipping a coin on patients with mania to decide if they got lithium or not. Um, and then two years later, in 1954, they published their findings and it was it was huge. It was, they were like, yes, absolutely, this is making a very big difference. And then that's when it really started to catch the eye um, of medical community and should we look into this. But then there's this still opposing force of, no, lithium is bad, it kills people. And so there's this back and forth shove of People starting to really investigate and look into it, but other people pushing back. However, with all this, so they start to see, yes, it's helpful, but again, if you give them too much, it quickly becomes toxic. So some of this pushback is like, even if it's helpful, if we give too much, it's it has all these negative side effects. So how do we combat that? We don't have any way to know how much we're we're giving them, like what it is in their system. And so I'm going to pass it off. Kyle is going to explain.
0: How we get past that? Yeah, I want to point out a couple of other things. So we we all read the shorter article, and uh, I think that's where we found the backbone of this. Now you've added a tremendous amount of detail to this story. I just want to point out that in the uh, shorter article, like, there were still case series happening after John Cades so or the group out of Melbourne, the French, and they. I mean the the phrases are particularly effective. I mean, I'm yes. quote, if you can't see my air quotes, <laughs> trust me, they're here, right? And and so. I thought it was also fascinating that, uh, I, I read the, the paper a little bit differently, where Stromgren assigned his staff member to do the study. <laughs> As opposed to, you know, we decided to go do it, but I, yeah. I, thought I got a kick out of that, and who knows, now I, I, I'm sure you read it more correctly. But I, I think it's interesting that they also made the comment, hey, we have barbiturates, or barbiturates, depending on how you say that word. Mm-hmm. We have ECT, both of these things work right? So it's not like you can't settle down a mania. I think they're also making the case that this is a molecule that strongly treats bipolar depression, not just bipolar mania, right? Correct.
3: So yeah, with the papers, they, they originally were very much just focused on the mania. That's what they were really seeing. They started noting that they noticed with the de- that it was doing something with the depression, but it really wasn't where the focus was until a little later, but, and that's when they really started to clue in, like, oh, this is helping both the highs and the lows and bringing those together. But, yeah, originally it was, it was more focused on just the highs, that they, they wanted to bring those down before, mm-hmm. and then they noticed, yeah, that it was helping with the lows.
0: Seemed to prevent that recurrence of depression. Correct. Uh, as opposed to an anti manic or an antidepressant agent, it was a mood-stabilizing agent that they were making the case for. So I think we're in 1958 right now, Um, I'm excited to talk about a a short story from 1960, but before we can even get to that story and really open up the research in the United States, um, which was led by uh, Gershon, if I'm reading this correctly, we have to solve this problem of lithium toxicity. Correct. How are we going to do that?
2: Yeah, so this was, we've kind of hinted at it before. Lithium has a very narrow therapeutic index. So. These doctors trying to administer this drug in the 1800s and in the 1930s, it was difficult for them. It was, the The paper called it guesswork because you couldn't monitor these levels effectively. <clears throat> and in 1941, so this is in the middle of World War II, the US government developed uh, this spectrophotometer that they used, uh, they were using it to help develop penicillins, so they used it to, get the best strain of penicillin, they also used it in the discovery of synthetic rubber. But they, they, they were using this device to test lithium, and the way it works is, we've all done it in general chemistry labs, we were talking about it earlier, and it's something we all kind of laughed because we've used this before and, and done these tests, but they take a hydrogen lamp and they, they shine the light off a mirror, it goes through a crystal and separates the light wavelengths and then you put a substance there and certain of those wavelengths will get absorbed and then you get a light profile and so they would put the blood sample there and then from that they would determine how much lithium was in their system but as you can imagine in 1941 testing very small amounts of lithium it wasn't the most accurate method so it was difficult for doctors they would give the lithium and have have these very toxic side effects but then in 1958, the Coleman flame photometer came out. And it's, you, t- you take your blood sample, you light it on fire, and it excites the electrons. And as the electrons jump levels, they emit photons. And these photons put off a light, a color. And lithium puts off a really distinct red color. And I've done this in general chemistry, too. I think all three of us had, yep. have done it in undergraduate mm-hmm. school. And so sodium burns a bright yellow, I think. Um, Every metal sort of has its color. And this is the basis of how we test lithium even today. So in 1958, the ability to more accurately test the blood levels of lithium made it a lot easier to use because you could avoid that toxic range and keep it in that narrow therapeutic index. And so even today, the, the, the flame test has evolved and become even more accurate and more precise but it all started in 1958 with the coleman flame photometer so.
0: that's pretty cool isn't it it's awesome so i, I mean i i th- I I wonder when I hear stories like this, right? We have names, as as we've done these podcasts, we've learned the origination of names, how certain thoughts and beliefs have evolved in psychiatry, and it makes me wonder if some of the uh, tests that we do in our chemistry labs have come from something like this uh, Coleman flame photometer, as opposed to the Beckman photometer, which I haven't used before either. So 1960, this was one of my favorite stories uh Minnesota seems to now be the epicenter of use in the United States. Uh, Minnesota and Michigan. Michigan, because there's now a professor that goes there from, I think he was familiar with John Cade's work. And so he heads to, um, to Michigan. They start doing some studies in Michigan. And uh, the next thing I read is that... Some of the people involved in these studies, specifically Sam Gershon, goes to the local pharmacy, bought a kilo of lithium, and started to put it in capsules that they bought there as well. Does it sound right to you? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Do you I, read- I, I read some of it, but I don't remember all the details. <laughs> there, I don't think there's more details, but I was cracking up. I'm like... <laughs> Who does that? (laughs) Right, it's almost unfathomable today to think about
2: buying something, making your own pills, and then giving it to your patients.
0: And in the context of this, not only are there studies going on, but now we have something that sounds like the name of a good rock band, the lithium underground, right? (laughs) Um, And so physicians who are wanting to prescribe lithium because it's so banned, they have to do something as what is it, an IND? I, I still am not sure that I know what that means.
3: I know. I read it, too, and I, I'm not sure what it stands for either. But more or less, yeah, there were physicians that were like, I believe the research. I want to use this on my patients. But it's not technically legal, but I'm going to prescribe it anyways.
0: Right. And so I think if they put IND on it, then they got away with it, right? So so there's this underground, <laughs> the lithium underground, <laughs> that that is, uh, um, that is using this. And all around the world, people are accepting this, right? Correct. We are the 50th country to approve the use of this medication, and I think there are, period, but I think most countries that have uh, permitted use of this medication have permitted use with both uh, mania and depression, not just the mania.
3: Yeah, so here in the United States, um, yeah, it's only uh, mania right now that it is for treating bipolar really it's we we have other uses and we're going to talk about this more in the next podcast other things that we've researched that it can be used for but here in the united states it's just approved fda approved for bipolar disorder and that is that's it there's there's some off label stuff but that's that's it right now and yeah and this adoption didn't come till 1970 in the united states and i was actually reading it was I don't, I couldn't find out exactly what his role was, but I guess there was some prominent physician here in the United States who pretty much made a public statement of, I don't care if the FDA is not going to approve it, I'm going to use it, and they said that pretty much gave the FDA the kick in the butt to finally get it through.
0: So the shorter article said a couple of things that, that struck me. One was, I think it was, I want to say Paul Blanche, does that sound right? think so. Yeah, I think he was the one that said it. But there was also this guy that's in charge of the FDA decision-making. Let me say it a different way. There's a guy on the panel, and he finally picks up the, the baton, so to speak, and says, we're going forward, and he made it happen. But then I also read a little bit later that he might have been blocking the approval until his buddies in the drug companies from uh, Pfizer and one other company, I don't remember now, were at the point where they could also submit a, a, a drug application, right? So there's a group out of Minnesota that was early to this, Rowell, R-O-W-E-L-L Labs, and they were trying to get it to market from the 60s on, right? They'd been working for almost a decade, and it was just block, 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 block. And, and one of the stories that shorter hints at is that there might have been some uh, unhelpful behaviors that got in the way of of the approval right not just all of the things we talked about already. now um, I want to um, head back not so far in time for a moment we talked about this topic and I said this is just way too big for one topic and I think the history of this is really really cool and then I proceeded to describe a history that oh I don't know even the most generous of people would say was horribly inaccurate. (laughs) 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 Devon's over there nodding, yeah. (laughs) Someone's right, whatever. (laughs) Well, yeah, horribly inaccurate. (laughs) But uh, there's this part of this that's very fascinating about uh, our water supply and how lithium in our water supply seems to be a driving factor for some of the things we know about lithium. Mm -hmm. And so we've also added another component to this podcast which is about uh, suicide risk. Lithium seems to have this very um, positive effect in trace amounts on reducing the risk of suicide. And I think Patrick, you you jumped into the literature. I wanted to make this about coastal cities and springs and all sorts of yep. things. And at the end of the day, you said, "Well, um, yeah, well, um, yeah, it's horribly wrong, <coughs> right?" A little bit. So, so tell us tell us about. What you learned about drinking water and trace lithium uh, in the drinking water that we have. And maybe seafood.
1: Sure, sure. Um, Well, I don't know about the seafood. uh, (laughs) So what you're saying is horribly wrong still? Probably not. I just don't have, I just don't know. (laughs) Um, But uh, I looked at an article that was published in 2014 from the uh, uh, Australian and New Zealand Journal of uh, Psychiatry. Uh, And they looked at about 378 uh, articles uh, that were available via PubMed that had anything to do with either the standard dose of lithium or trace amounts of lithium and its effect uh, biologically to any extent. They ultimately came up with about 27 uh, articles uh, and concluded that there is a... Uh, significant um, correlation with trace elements of lithium in drinking water and uh, not just reduced rates of um, suicide but also reduced rates of dementia. Um, and uh, well, in the first study was performed actually uh, in uh, 1968 and published in 1970, where they looked at uh, 27 counties in Texas. Uh, They first found that there was lithium in the drinking supplies in these counties and that there was a inversely correlated uh, rate of first-time psychiatric admissions as well as readmissions in those counties with the uh, highest amounts of lithium. Um, And uh, so uh, fast forward to this study that they put out in 2014 that uh, reviewed the literature Um, And they concluded that uh, it's not just uh, reduction in suicide, but it's also reduction in rape and murder and uh, dementia. There's uh, some evidence to suggest that there's possibly less uh, cardiac uh, events in cities that have higher amounts of lithium. Now these are all just correlations. I think this this obviously needs to be looked at a little bit more thoroughly, but I I believe it's safe to say that there is something there. Uh, Some people have made the argument that maybe lithium should just be placed in the drinking water like fluoride is. I don't know about that. (laughs) Um, But it's definitely something that I think, you know, it's clear that that needs to be uh, researched and looked into a little bit more.
0: So one of the, there are a couple of things that came to uh, up during the things that I was trying to read and study through. The first was that I was always under the impression that trace amounts of lithium did reduce the risk of suicide. That seems to be consistently something we see, right? Yes, yes. Um, now, the other thing that that kind of came up for me, and I, I would be interested in hearing your thoughts about this, um, it looks like maybe these, these, some of these places that have higher levels of lithium, and I think you mentioned Texas specifically. And yes. we might have a little bit of information in a moment about one of the places that was mentioned in the the shorter article, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it was Texas, Warm Springs, or something along those lines. And, and I think uh, uh, Kyle may have something on that in a moment. We'll see how it fits in. Um, it seems like maybe the idea of of healthy waters because of lithium content has been around for a while. Yes, you tried to find where that started. Yeah, tell me how that went.
1: So I actually could not really identify exactly where that started. Um, the first known uh, scientifically, you know, I guess,
0: Kind of the first paper, first paper, the first, published. the first person to eat an oyster yes. in the film <laughs> <laughs> um, was this
1: The study was performed in 1968. It was published in 1970, and that was the uh, article that I mentioned that discussed that in these counties in Texas, that the counties that had the higher lithium uh, traces in their drinking supply had reduced rates of first-time psychiatric admissions in their psychiatric hospitals, as well as reduced rates of additional admissions after that for those that had been admitted prior.
0: And this is only trace amounts. This isn't this is tra- what we would yeah, consider a therapeutic We're talking
1: reasonable. like 32 parts per billion. Very, not a lot, so...
0: I'm trying to figure out how many zeros are in a billion again. (laughs) (laughs) So we we talked to um, one of the hospital leaders here at the Utah State Mm -hmm. Hospital, uh, Jeremy, who we said, hey, we think we're going to have a podcast in the near future on the history of lithium. And he said, oh yeah, it comes out of these healing places where people would go to with healthy waters. and." we didn't find that necessarily right, right. but i think we were looking for that and this is something that was unusual with this podcast we found two of the very seminal papers right first of all this article by john cade if i have his name right and the article the gout article by uh, garad and we were kind of i don't know i think i was getting a little cocky because it you know <laughs> it's common for us to not find very many of these seminal papers like was the case with uh, the burnout paper right right uh, the original burnout paper. So um, I'm going to shift gears just a little bit and speak to the healthy waters idea. If Kyle, if you have anything on that,
2: yeah. So I think I think where we're f- we're having this gap is a lot of this is folklore. It's not there's not research articles on this. So the the story of the Texas waters, from what I've seen, is they have these mineral baths. They, they call them healing waters and people will go and sit in these springs that have back aches or you know, little aches and pains or sicknesses, they go to these healing waters and sit in the water and bathe and soak and it's supposed to heal them. And so they had these all over Texas and one of them they noticed an older lady with dementia drinking from these waters and they called her the town crazy lady and after she drank from these springs, she wasn't so crazy anymore. So they called it crazy water. And it was found, discovered later, that this water has lithium in it. And so that's kind of where the story goes there. There's no research articles on it, but there's this sort of folklore out there that there's these healing waters in Texas that can cure your craziness.
0: And and again, those are that's the kind of language we wouldn't really use anymore because it's right. not descriptive. And yet even the shorter article referenced, I, I think, what he called the crazy waters. And what I didn't know is if this was something that had... Uh, Native American traditions or roots within the story or not because I I think there's in the back of my mind There's just always this idea if you just get in the right hot bubbly warm spring water anywhere between you know, Yellowstone and uh, Arkansas, you're gonna be happy, right? (laughs) (laughs) Um, So I I wanted to just point out one thing as well. You talked about first in first out I guess not one thing, we've got a few more things, but I want to add one more part to this discussion before we talk about maybe the future of lithium, right? And that is that uh, Shorter made an assertion that you said almost word for word, right? Shorter said something along the lines of, hey, in my personal communication, n- nobody's using lithium in the United States, they're all using Prox and we have had a podcast on Prox. And, yeah, you know, it's got its strengths, it's got its weaknesses, but I'm not sure anything is as potent or as capable at treating bipolar disorder and bipolar depression as lithium.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah, so this is, I guess, yeah, where I was kind of tied in and was curious about lithium. So going through med school, lithium was presented as the gold standard. This is like the go-to treatment for bipolar. And then when I started coming out and doing clinical work, I wasn't seeing it used anywhere, and I started asking about, like, do you use lithium when you treat these? And I had all these physicians that are like, no, like it's a garbage medication. It has so many side effects. It's so weird. Like I, I don't like it. It's messy and no, like no, we've moved on. You know, now we have these other better things, and I hardly use it. And I was just like, whoa, like what's, like so what's the answer? Like do we really use lithium? Do we not? And so it was one of the reasons why I wanted to dive into this. And yeah, what I really found, yeah, was I kept running across this phrase with lithium that the United States was the last in and the first out. So it finally gets approved in 1970. We start using lithium, have great effects with it, but then yeah, we get all these other drugs coming out and that people decide to start using. We end up with lamotrigine and valporic acid and all these other things that are options to treat uh, bipolar disorder with. And for whatever reason here in America we've really gravitated towards these other medications and so it's gotten to the point where when they I've read that they've done surveys of physicians and a lot of physicians are just saying like I don't feel like I have enough training on lithium to use it I don't really know how to go about using it Um, and there is training to be involved with it we're going to get into the next podcast yeah there's a lot of side effects that you need to know about Um, there's things that you need to monitor while a patient is on lithium and there are um, severe consequences that can come, yeah, from the toxicity side, organ problems. And so it does It does take a little bit of work on the end of the physician to make sure that that's okay. But it's, for whatever reason, yeah, the, uh, we've, here in America, just decided not to use it as much. But that's not really the case for most of the rest of the world. In most other countries, it's still, it is still the gold standard. But for some reason here in America, we've decided to jump ship. So I think it's going to be really fascinating to see on that side of it, how will we continue to lose, use lithium in the medical field? Will it come back again? Is it gonna make a third entrance here in medicine in the United States? Or are we gonna come up with other drugs? I don't know.
0: I would say that um, generally speaking, we don't think about our other uh, mood stabilizing agents as being life-threatening, but that's not entirely the case, right? I just think that that therapeutic window that we have with lithium is probably what causes a lot of the fear even though our other medications are not benign, right? Steven Johnson syndrome associated with lamotrigine. It's terrible, uh, yeah. Platelet kinds of issues, ammonia issues with uh, valproic acid, uh, that induction of every single existing uh, enzyme in your body that can mess up drug levels with carbamazepine. I I think they they all have their challenges, and the issue isn't avoiding one because it's bad. The issue is knowing how to use all of them. Maudsley. Why was Maudsley so against lithium? So there's a, there's a psychiatric hospital, the largest psychiatric hospital in in London, if I understand correctly. And it turns out that they were very much against lithium, and this may have been something that was overcome in England, but it might have had an effect in the United States. I couldn't tell based on the shorter article. Did you? Uh, did any of you read more about uh, Maudsley?
2: I read a little bit about it. And I couldn't find a distinct reason. They just sort of had this hatred of lithium at this hospital and they were putting out, they were putting out literature that said lithium is terrible. And it's a terrible drug. Anyone using lithium is not using sound science. And they were putting this out there. I don't know why I couldn't find a reason why, but they were putting it out there. And I think that had a big impact on other physicians. Yeah. and their thoughts on lithium and their opinions of it.
0: It seemed like that had largely faded away by the 70s, and now there's a, there's a Maudsley prescribing guide, MPG. I looked, uh, tried to look it up online. You can apparently get it with a, a couple of other um, texts in some package deals, so to speak. Um, but I think they've now stepped away from that position pretty strongly.
2: Yeah, I think so. I think so.
0: Uh, so lithium... It's not just for bipolar disorder anymore.
3: No. <laughs> so this is kind of takes us now into the future of I'm, of what what what's next. What's going to happen with lithium? So, and I was not able to find anything in like medical journals about this. I actually had to go to like tech journals. So I found um, an article, uh, the Vikstrom article, which is from Applied Energy. It came from Sweden, and this article is, starts going into yeah the future demand for lithium. So right now our society is undergoing this shift. We are beginning to move from petroleum products to electrification. Um, And so if we're going to run off of what we're trying to be cleaner energy, we need all these batteries to store electricity. And right now, lithium-ion batteries are by far the best batteries that we have. If you'll remember, lithium is Uh, element number three on the periodic table. It's a very small atom and so it allows us to make very dense batteries um, that can hold more power than your traditional alkaline battery. And they don't wear out quite as poorly as as the alkaline batteries do. And so as we begin to move into this kind of new age of energy, it's it's producing enormous demand for lithium. So currently uh, medical use of all the lithium in the world, 2% of that is being used by the healthcare industry for treatments. Um, Elon Musk
0: is using the rest. (laughs) That's what it seems like. So
3: I was trying to find numbers. The best numbers I could find were from 2011, which is hilarious because electric cars have come a long way since 2011. But even in 2011, 27% of the world's supply of lithium was being diverted to battery use. So no doubt that has gone up exponentially since then Um, and yeah it's the as we try and make electric cars the demand for lithium is skyrocketing so this article that I was reading through even back it was published in 2013 they were trying to predict the demand for lithium um, from present time up to 2050 so they were going through how much are we currently producing Um, From our mining efforts? How much more can our mining efforts expand? And then they started going through and trying to predict as the um, economy shifts what the demand would be. Now that's really hard. There's lots of factors coming in. How much lithium can we recycle? And how long is it on the market before it has to be recycled? And there's lots of other battery technologies being investigated. So will we find something better down the road? And then Will that drop the demand for lithium? So there's lots of factors, so it's very hard to look at. But they tried to do their best, and I thought it was fascinating. So they based, they made some assumptions just about looking at electric vehicles, the EV sector. And they said, okay, if their assumptions were that cars, these new EVs, would have 25 kilowatt-hour batteries, and that by 2050, 60% of our vehicles would be EVs, With that projection, their estimates were that our demand for lithium would exceed the supply in the mid-2020s, and by 2050, the demand would be double the supply. And those statistics I thought were funny, because currently, so they, like I said, they based it on a 25 kilowatt hour battery. A Tesla Model 3 right now has either a 54 or an 82 kilowatt battery. So the batteries are already two to three times bigger than what they were doing their estimates on. And then they're estimating that only 60% of like new vehicles will be EVs by 2050. Well, the transition seems to be happening faster than that. The European Union is pushing to have no internal combustion cars being sold by 2035, that all new vehicles in Europe will be... Electric vehicles and Volvo has said that their entire fleet will be electric by twenty thirty at the latest. They will know that they will no longer be selling electric vehicles, uh, gas vehicles. Sorry, sorry, yeah, gas yeah. vehicles. So just want to make sure. Yeah, <laughs> I, I wasn't even sure Volvo still made cars. So, <laughs> so the the transition to EVs, there's still resistance. A lot of people I know who do not like EVs, but the transition to EVs seems to be happening faster than even this paper was predicting. And yeah, and their final conclusion was, even by our best, wildest mining guesses, the demand for lithium is far going to exceed this supply in the near future. So then the question is, is if we're using all this lithium to create batteries you know, for this new energy future, what's gonna happen to the price of lithium? Right now, it's a pretty cheap drug to use for treating patients, but is it even, is it gonna get really expensive? Will it even be available to use for patients if we're trying to soak all of it into battery technology? So like, Mm -hmm. my brain was just going crazy with this, like, oh my goodness, I guess I really need to put stock into lithium right now. (laughs) It'll pay off my student loans.
0: So, so I wish you could all see us around the microphone. Uh, Devin has done such, so, like, I, I'm guessing everybody is as <laughs> captivated as we are. Uh, Kyle and I keep looking at each other, just going, <laughs> nodding our heads, and, and thinking, oh, wow, this is pretty amazing. And uh, Patrick seems to be just, like, in stunned silence. over there. <laughs> uh, so I, I think if people knew how fast the electric cars were, they would be jumping to them more quickly, right?
3: It's Yeah, I think it's a lot of... <laughs> I don't know. I'm very much a Tesla fan, and I I am excited to be whatever, I guess an early adopter whatever, of these technologies. They're not perfect. There are issues to be overcome with it. But really the only thing that are holding electric cars back right now is range mm-hmm. and how long it takes to recharge. But that keeps improving mm-hmm. every year. And every other way, they're superior. They break down way less. They have way less Pure moving parts. parts. And even if with an electric car... Um, It does cost the greenhouse emissions to create an electric car are more than an ICE car internal combustion engine car But as you drive it you pay that off Mm -hmm. and even if you drive it off of completely dirty energy um, the way we create energies are not equal so in an internal combustion engine car only at, even in our best ones today, only 18% of the energy from gasoline is actually turned into mechanical energy to move the car. The rest of it's expended as heat. So we need big radiators on cars to dispel all this heat. So like when only a fifth of your energy is actually going to move the car and the rest of it gets expelled, that's incredibly inefficient. Whereas when we burn fossil fuels to create electricity, We're using heat to create that. You use heat to boil water, and that water turns a turbine to create electricity. So it is a far more efficient process. And so when you charge up a car with electricity coming, even if it's from 100% fossil fuels, it is still about 40% of the um, greenhouse gas emissions needed as to propel a car for those same distances. So even though electric cars have their problems, there's still Twice, over twice as clean as um, ice cars, even if you're using "quote unquote" dirty energy to supply them.
0: So I got to admit, I totally zoned that out because I was still thinking about how fast the new Lightning F one hundred and fifty was supposed to be. Uh, my my uh, I I got married a couple of years ago, and uh, my spouse took my beautiful uh, red truck. We called it BART, big, awesome red truck. (laughs) She still calls it BART. And it's a combustion engine. And I've sometimes mentioned, hey, this might be the time. It's kind of the sweet spot where there's still a lot of value in the car. To look at a, a, it's a 2015, and maybe we could get a 2022, something along those lines. And she says no. (laughs) Um, But a couple of days ago, she sent me a picture of the electric F-150 that's coming out, and apparently it's very quick. Very. (laughs) Biden
3: drove one I know recently, and he was very, very impressed with it. I'm sorry, who drove one?
0: Joe Biden. Joe Biden was impressed with it. Okay, there we go. We have it from (laughs) the President of the United States. Yeah, so there you (laughs) go. Better (laughs) better
3: authority, right? According to
2: Wikipedia, Joseph Robinette Biden Jr. is an (laughs)
0: American... I can't... Apparently Google thinks that uh, (laughs) we're asking about (laughs) President Biden. Um, Now... I was wrong about almost everything that I asked you guys to look at, right? Was I wrong about ocean bed mining of lithium? I looked for that a little bit. I didn't find anything specific on
3: it. I do know, I did find stuff that, yeah, we're trying to find new ways to mine um, lithium. Uh And I did find it interesting, most world supplies of lithium are located around the Ring of Fire in the Pacific Ocean. So the countries that right now have the biggest supplies are first Chile, which had like over 50% of the world's lithium. Oh, wow. Um, and then Australia, Argentina, and China. Hmm. Are the, those are the big sources of lithium in the world right now. But yeah, we're, we're, because demand is skyrocketing as we try and use electric batteries, we're definitely looking other places. So I have no doubt that that's, we're looking to mine the seafloor to find other places to get it because
2: we're desperate for it.
0: So what you're saying is potentially horribly wrong, jury's still out. Yeah, I did.
2: <laughs> I, I did read. I did read that there's a ton of lithium dissolved in seawater, uh-huh. but it's so similar chemically to, to sodium, that you can't to extract it. Okay.
0: Yeah, I thought. I, I thought I had read something about uh, some component that's critical to our lithium-ion batteries, um, and that there were groups seeking permits to be able to obtain those items, but I, I can't remember if that was something I read about lithium or if it was something else. So. Gotcha. Um, something about mining the seafloor. Uh, let's see, what have I not asked about? What have we not talked about?
3: I think that's, yeah, just about everything. I mean, I can go on about electric cars forever, but, <laughs> but yeah, I think, but which, yeah, so this has just been fascinating for me to see the evolution of it, how we discovered it, how it's came and went and came back and is a little bit gone away again, and and, yeah, what's, I don't know, what's going to be next as the, our world changes?
0: I do think it's interesting how Shorter makes the argument that we really... I, I think what he's saying, in essence, is we're not using lithium the way we could. Correct. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And And you start to wonder when you read the stories of these really miraculous recoveries that people had, you start thinking, you know what, maybe we're not. Probably we're not. All right, so let's see if we got a take home. How about if we start with you, Kyle, what's your take home on this?
2: My take home is, lithium's a great drug. It's, <laughs> it's The history is amazing and, and really fun to dig, dig into, but it's really effective, it's very helpful, and we have a really good way of testing it and keeping it in that therapeutic index. So I don't think it's that scary of a drug. I know we learned the side effects and they're scary to read about, but... I think it can be used very safely and very effectively. Patrick, what's your take home?
1: Um, yeah, I mean, really I feel the same way. Uh, I don't really think it's that scary of a drug. I think what's more important is that as a physician, you do your due, due diligence in making sure that uh, you're monitoring your patient's kidneys and making sure that everything's OK. And, and if you do that, it. Well, in general, things are much safer. Yeah,
0: Yeah. And again, I think that's what we'll be talking about uh, sometime in the next week, I hope, is how do we make sure that lithium is safe um, and about how to manage it, what the side effects are and so forth. I think, uh, Devin, I'll give you the last takeaway. So I'm just going to say that there were a lot of things that were really fascinating to me. And, And along those lines is this idea of the first man to eat an oyster, right? Who who is it that came up with this idea why, how, how did they go about these studies, what did it lead to, and and how did we figure these things out? That's always so fascinating to me. And I think the the part of that that I liked most was this story about John Cade, right? I'm not sure I really understand these uh, science experiments that you described, and yet at the end of the day, he figured out something that was really valuable. And there's an article that his son, uh, who is a surgeon, ICU, cardiologist, I don't remember now, I think it was ICU, I see. Yeah. ICU, yeah. doc in Melbourne, and a psychiatrist also from Melbourne, they, they made this statement that uh, I just thought it was so cool. Um, and I wish I could remember it, maybe, uh, let's see, I think... If you will help me out, I think, Devin, you have it, right? There's a story, there's a, a line, not Devin, I'm sorry, Kyle. Um, if you do John Cade, you'll find it, I think, because it's, it's the phrase. But uh, John Cade's son makes this statement, and uh, one more, I think. This is compelling radio. <laughs> I'm, I'm gonna read this to you, if I can. Maybe it's the next one. Is that two? No, go back one. Okay, that John Cades, this is his son and a doctor, Jin Molly, uh, who wrote in 2007, John Cades' discovery demonstrates the importance of clinical observation, the significance of reporting case findings, the value of being patient-centered, and the scientific benefit of an open and inquiring mind. In a world that is driven by, we have to have evidence-based medicine only, how do you still have the, the growth and development of new ideas? I don't think it's the same way that John Cade did, I think we have different tools and techniques, but if we're not open, if we're not paying attention to those uh, serendipitous things that are showing up, like John Cade going one step further and just simply giving lithium to rats. Um, then where, where do you end up? And I also would say that uh, I would love to have somebody at the end of my life who had that kind of praise for me, and I think that speaks highly to who John Cade was. So I think my take home is uh, be like John Cade in the way that was good. And if, <laughs> if, if there's some ways out there that he wasn't as good, don't be like him in those ways. <laughs> um.
3: I, th- I thought this was really fun. I thought this story beginning to end was fascinating. So I'm just taking home a lot of joy from learning about this. But I think this was also a good reminder to me. I got to see, I know I've had these differing opinions and information that's come towards me over the last three years about the validity of lithium as a treatment. And it was confusing to me. And so I think this was good in that I got to dive in and really find out what the facts were and realizing that maybe what you see going on in medicine just because that's what's happening that doesn't mean that that's the best sort of thing or what's trendy sort of thing like so question things ask why why do we use this one why do we not use this one because yeah going into this now I'm gonna be like as a future physician like yeah I can use lithium to treat my patients and then with the information from our next podcast, I'm going to know the steps that I need to take to make sure that it's safe, but I don't have to be afraid of it, and I know the, the effects behind it, and that I do want to use it, that it's a valid drug. Not that I can just take someone else's opinion, oh, it's messy, and go, okay, I won't bother with it anymore. So, yeah, dive in and find out. Don't just take someone's word for it, right? Isn't that what LeVar Burton always says on Reading Rainbow? Don't take my word for it. Like, get in and find it yourself. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Is that Geordie?
3: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
0: That's, a, that's a great end, and I think it resonates a lot with uh, our Draw a Clock podcast, right, if you've heard that one, yes. where, where we were all kind of going, wait a minute, we've all heard of this, but where's the data again? <laughs> and then you go look at the data, and you're like, okay, knowing the data helps me. And I think in this case, knowing the history a little bit helps you overcome some of the barriers that were created by other physicians or other providers that maybe gave you differing perspectives. And again, if you've had a patient get toxic on lithium, it's easy to change your mind about lithium. And that's why you want to know how to use it when you do. And I'm really glad that you have a two-part podcast.
3: It's going to be fun. So yeah, next one, we'll dig into the nitty-gritty details of what makes lithium tick.
0: I, I can't wait. This was great. Thank you so much. On that note, guys, team out. Team, Team
2: out. out.